0: You know, uh, sitting over there looking out at the congregation, seeing some other folks we have with us this morning. Uh, I think one of the things I may never forgive Kevin for, I look over here at Andrew Iwers and Whitney, and uh, he had me chaperone on a ski trip a number of years ago, when we went to uh, Winter Park, West Virginia, and he put me in the room with Andrew and a guy we called Opie, Jared Richardson. Called him Opie, he looks just like Opie on Mayberry, only six foot five. And Josh Sales and Andy Adcox. Need I see, say more? Jo- it was six degrees, literally. Six degrees, cold weekend. Josh was determined we were going to sleep with the window open the way he did at home in the wintertime. And I said, no, we're not. (laughs) And then uh, next morning, I'm sitting there on the end of the uh, bed drinking my coffee and just catching up on the morning news before we went out skiing. And all of a sudden, through the mirror... Here's Andrew and Opie, and they're flying through the air like Superman and landing on the bed. Uh, Belly flops. And as soon as they hit the bed, the bed absolutely disintegrated. I kid you not, the bed frame disintegrated. It broke in a thousand pieces. Pastor Scott, what are we going to do? And I said, come here, and we lifted the mattress off, and we pieced the frame back together and set the mattress and box springs down on it, and it went, and fell over again. And and we did it again, and we got it to stay, and I said, come on, let's go. <laughs> uh, but anyway, good to see Andrew and, and Whitney, of course, Not uncommon to see Whitney and Chris with us normally in the 9 o'clock service. Andrew, good to see you. You know, I tell uh, Kevin, tell both Kevins, as a matter of fact, that uh, they always need to have one in their back pocket, a message. Because on any given Sunday, something may happen to me at the last minute. And they may need to preach. So, Kevin, you're surprised this morning. Come on up here. You got one in your back pocket? <laughs> Seriously. here, Come on. I'm, <laughs> would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Gotcha. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. Would you find Philippians chapter 2? The power and influence of a servant's life. I think I had him going there for a minute. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. Power and influence of a servant's life. Paul writes So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Father, again, we thank you for this occasion, and I think it's quite fitting to turn to Philippians chapter 2 When later on in this very chapter, Paul gives honor to Timothy And says of Timothy, I have no one like him Lord, again, we thank you for this occasion, for this church family For what this church means to Kevin and Sherry and their family. And what they mean to us. Lord, we do honor him today as somebody who has pointed people to Christ. He's not pulled people around himself, but just as his favorite verse says. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's the way Kevin has lived his life. We thank you for that example. May all of us be more like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In April 1975, in a community 40 miles east of Dallas, was was a split. A church community was split over the issue of speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit. One group had become involved in the charismatic movement and members of that group claimed to speak in tongues. The other group called the Faithful 86 disagreed and a battle broke out. Holy Week services were interrupted literally by fist fights among the members. One group changed the locks on the church and the other group turned around and Returned the favor, did the very same thing. Then one group put the ad in the newspaper that they were the true First Baptist Church. The other group followed suit and did the identical thing. Consider another case from the same area. This is not against Dallas. Connie and I lived in that area, loved that area. But uh, a church in Dallas became so divided that each side instituted a lawsuit seeking to dispossess the other side from the church's property. All this despite commands in the scripture that we're not to take our brothers and sisters to secular courts. The story hit the Dallas Press. The judge wisely ruled that it was not the province of the court to decide such matters until the case had been heard before the denomination's church court. The losers withdrew and formed another church nearby. It was reported in the press that the denominational court had conducted an investigation into the origin of the dispute and the eventual split. The trouble began when at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him. Now, we don't want any of that this afternoon at the church luncheon, okay? Sad to say, experiences like that have been all too common throughout church history. Churches are not only attacked from the outside, but will sometimes gobble themselves up from the inside, Now, as we look at the Philippian congregation in our text, apparently they stood firm in doctrine. In chapter one, there are no doctrinal concerns that the Apostle Paul raises. But in chapter four, you'll recall, Paul has to call down two ladies that are beginning to disrupt the fellowship a little bit, and some members are being drawn into this face off. Uh, Paul's going to address that more later. But in this passage, I want you to notice what he's doing by principle and also by illustration. He tells us that we are to put others before ourselves. Now, folks, I want us to look at this passage this morning because I I think there is an attitude and a spirit in this text that Kevin personifies. I really mean that. I think Kevin does a marvelous job at doing the exact things that Paul says in these first four verses that we are to do in the church family. I was not here more than a month before I could see something about his heart. And and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt whatever other spiritual gifts Kevin Seeger exemplified He had the gift of service and helps. Seventeen years later, for me, I'm still convinced about that. Whatever other gifts he may have, service and helps is certainly something that he exemplifies very, very well. That gift comes alongside of others and helps them and serves them. And Kevin does that and does it well. He puts his own life on hold to help us. Now I want you to see how Paul develops this in the text. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Joy comes from seeing believers unified around the gospel. That's what Paul is pointing out here. Joy comes from seeing believers. Believers unified around the gospel. Paul says if there is any encouragement in Christ. Any comfort from love. Any participation in the spirit. Any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord. And of one mind. Jesus had said to his disciples in John 13, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we read the book of Acts, particularly chapter 2 and 4, and see the body life of the early church, and how they exemplified that love and what Jesus had commanded them uh, to do. One of the hallmarks to Christianity is that true believers love to meet together, serve one another, love one another, and worship together. As soon as somebody gets saved, that desire ought to be in their heart. John in 1 John says it is a mark of authentic Christianity that there is a love in us for the brethren to serve one another, to meet together, to to worship God together. But how do we do that? How do we relate to one another? How do we fellowship together? Look look what Paul says here. He gives some descriptive phrases. He says first of all be of the same mind. Be of the same mind. There in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's when he gets into the, the main clause there. So be of the same mind, we need common convictions, biblical convictions. We're not a fellowship of Muslims, we're not a fellowship of Hindus, we're not a a fellowship of many other world religions that we could mention. We are a fellowship of Christians. We meet to worship Jesus Christ. And and what is it that gives the basis or the foundation of, of these convictions that we are to be the same mind on? It is the word of God. Now folks, we'll never be alike on opinions or preferences. Mere opinions and preferences aren't things that can hold a body of believers together. But the word of God does those core biblical convictions. Kevin loves the word of God. He loves doctrine. Through the history of the church, there's been those core doctrines, the sovereignty of God, the the inspiration and authority of Scripture, the eternal lostness of man apart from Jesus Christ, salvation through Jesus Christ alone, the necessity of repentance and faith as a part of the new birth, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the essentiality of missions. Those are core doctrines that have held the orthodox church together through the centuries. Now the church has preferences on other issues. Baptism, Lord's Supper, different groups do those things different ways. But the core doctrines are a part of any Bible-believing fellowship. There were some things that the Apostle Paul wanted the members of the Philippian church thinking alike on. He wanted all their hearts and minds uh, chiming in together like two clocks that would strike at the same moment. Secondly, he says here, be of the same love. This is another rallying point for Christians. We have a common love. What is it? Our love for Jesus Christ. In Christianity, we don't just embrace religion. We embrace Jesus Christ. We love him. And because we love him, we love those who are born of Christ. We love the brethren. Jesus was asked on one occasion... What what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment of all. And you remember what he did there in in Matthew 22. He picked up on the Shema uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But he enlarged on it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. He said we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our body, with all our mind, with all our soul. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hangs the whole law, the prophets and the law. And so we're to love God, we're to love the people of God and the things of God. We love what God loves and hate, hate what God hates. Do you love Christ? Do you love the brethren? Do you love what God loves? That's a mark of true conversion. If we don't love what God loves, then how can we claim that God's love is in us if we don't love what God loves? A third word here in verse 2, be of the same spirit and purpose. Literally, we should be, uh, he says, spirit with spirit, one purpose. And what did Jesus give as the purpose of the church? Well, great commission for one. And in Colossians 1, Paul said it was his desire to present all men complete in Christ. We're to rally spirit to spirit around the mission of the church. Now, I want you to notice, not only do we have these admonitions or instructions, but Paul, if when we go back up to verse 1, he's actually laying the foundation for verse 2 with verse 1, giving the motivations for doing these things. What's the motivation? He says there in verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ... Now in the Greek language the word if here is translated it it doesn't have the sense that there may be, may not be but uh, if your English translation says sense there is that's a good way to understand it. The word he uses for encouragement is the same as that which describes the Holy Spirit being called alongside of us to help us. Has the Lord ever encouraged you? come alongside of you? I'm sure he has. I think we would all admit that we found great support and help and encouragement in our lives from the Lord when we needed it the most. Perhaps as you were going through a trial in your life, the Lord laid somebody on your heart who came around to see you and you were helped by that and that meant the world to you. He says, that's what we're to do. If that's happened in your life, if you've received that kind of encouragement from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you, you need to come alongside of your brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and help them. And as though those who have been encouraged, we need to be encouragers. We need to offer what the Lord has offered to us. Now, obviously... I meant it as a joke a moment ago. Something I would never forgive uh, Kevin for. That's obviously you knew that was a joke because yeah, along with encouragement, what do we see receive from the Lord? Forgiveness. Remember what what P, uh, what Simon Peter was told by the Lord in Matthew eighteen. If we've received forgiveness from Christ as believers, we have to offer forgiveness. That encouragement and forgiveness is something we have to do as the body of Christ. It's a joy to do. Jesus told that parable about that, that man that was forgiven of this humongous debt, like $20 million. And then he went out and he called a fellow servant who owed him $20. And though he had been forgiven $20 million in today's uh, uh coinage today's denominations of money and amounts though he had been forgiven that 20 million he would not forgive 20 dollars and the master said go get that guy and cast him in the outer darkness and put him in prison he didn't have the heart of the master what the scripture is saying what Paul is indicating here these things that we receive from Christ We turn around and offer them to others. And it's a mark of sonship. The next motivation Paul gives for living in unity is any comfort from love. Has it ever done you any good in the midst of the valley to understand that God loves you? You may not like what you might be going through at some period of time in your life. But you know that as his child anything you face has first of all been sifted through his loving fingers. Then Paul mentions any participation in the Spirit. You and I enjoy the participation of the Spirit. He's with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And finally, by way of motivation to unity, Paul mentions any affection and sympathy. This is an expression that goes well with love. Not only does God love us, but he has an affection and a sympathy. In other words, God's love is not disconnected. It's not remote. It's not distant. It's not cold. God's love is up close and personal. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses. So Paul is saying all of those are the motivations behind what he says in verse 2. Verse 1 is the motivation for the commands that he gives in verse 2. Again, I mention that. Things that Kevin exemplifies in a marvelous way in his life. And we're a better church because of that. Secondly I want you to see that joy comes from seeing maturity in in other believers Verses 3 and 4 He says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but But in humility count others more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not only to his own interest But also to the interest of others He admonished them to lay down a spirit of rivalry and conceit, doing nothing from rivalry or conceit. Uh, We we know what it is to be selfish. The the, the word for conceit is vainglory, having too high of an opinion of ourselves. Far too many people in the world have too high of an opinion of themselves. And Paul saw how that could creep into the church. One tragic thing in the world we see today is how people in the world demand to have their needs met. Some people come to church with the mentality, what's in it for me? And one of the things revolutionary about the Christian faith, what Paul is saying here in verses 3 and 4, is that we're to come to church with the exact opposite attitude. Not what's in it for me, but what can I do for others? You give kids a pile of toys, little kids, toddlers. What what do they say? What's that that one four-letter word that a kid will say with his toys? Be careful now. (laughs) One four-letter word. Mine, mine, mine. In a church body, when we see our brothers and sisters in need, though, we're to we're busy ourselves with looking after them. That's the sign of a happy and a healthy church. Also the sign of a holy church. Thirdly, joy comes from seeing people imitate Jesus. Joy comes from seeing people imitate Jesus. Jesus. What's he say in verse 5? Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus or which is yours out of your union with Christ Jesus. And he gives that illustration of Jesus Christ who left the glories of heaven and came to this earth in the incarnation and died on the cross for you and me. Some of the greatest teaching on Jesus Christ coming in the flesh comes from these verses right here. Most scholars believe verses 5 through 11 was an early hymn, a Christian hymn in the church that Paul is borrowing from. A hymn. But Paul meant these verses as an illustration of what he has just told them in the first four verses. What do we do we do as Sunday school teachers or as ministers of the gospel when we're teaching? We try to illustrate exactly the points that we've just made, right? Somebody asked the great preacher on one occasion, Dr. Stephen Olford. His students asked him, Dr. Olford, in our messages or in our Bible studies, what points should we illustrate? You know what his answer was? Classic answer. Just the points you want your students to remember. What points should we illustrate? Just the points you want them to remember. Illustrations are powerful, they communicate. And that's what these, as rich as these verses here are in the doctrine of Christology, that the nature, the person, the work of Jesus Christ, Paul essentially lays these verses down as the model, Christ being the model illustration of what he's just admonished them in the first four verses to do. And think of the power of it. Because here was Jesus who deserved nothing but praise and glory and worship and adoration. And what did Jesus do? Now he didn't lay aside deity. If you want to study this passage more, there's this whole thing of kinetic theology. What did Christ empty himself of? I don't have time to get into that. He didn't empty himself uh, of his nature and person and who he was. He's, He's still God, the second member of the Trinity. He didn't lay any of that aside in the incarnation. But he laid aside that heavenly glory. Remember in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, restore that glory that that I had with you before. He laid, think of laying aside everything Christ had in heaven to come to this earth to die on a cross for people like you and me. If anybody deserved better, it was Christ. If anybody deserved to have all the focus on him, it was Christ. And what Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, if the one you and I call Lord and Master and King of Kings and Lord of Lords can lay aside his uh, preexistent glory and come to this sin sick world and die on a cross, not only not only just a normal death, a horrible death. Death of a criminal back then. Even among the Romans in polite conversation, you weren't even supposed to speak of the cross in polite conversation. He died a horrible death. Why? Why? What was he doing? Was Jesus looking after his own needs? No, because if he were looking after his own needs, he wouldn't have died on the cross because he was sinless. He didn't die for himself. He died for you and me. The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He put aside everything he deserved to humble himself. And die a criminal's death that you and I might be with him one day. Amen. So he's telling the Philippians. Do you think this is difficult? What I've just wrote to you about in the first four verses. It might be difficult for you to do at some time or another. But it's what Jesus did. Jesus was the perfect son of God and he did this. He humbled himself. And notice how he closes the passage because Jesus did that. The Father exalted him. So what, what are we to do in the church? We're to humble ourselves and look after the needs and interests of others and let God worry about the rewards that we get one day. Folks, again, that's how Ke- Kevin, doesn't, Kevin Kevin doesn't serve for rewards. Truth be told, we're probably embarrassing him a little bit today. A little uneasy feeling being recognized. He he doesn't do what he does for this. He does it because he loves you and he loves Jesus. He loves the Word of God. And Paul's saying that's how we all ought to be. And then if we do that, we can rest assured that, that God one day will give us all those rewards on the other side. And that's why he says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to see wonderful things take place in your life? Do exactly what Paul is saying here. Again, we're here this morning because we want to honor somebody who's done these things. You know, I, I hear people say, Pitt seems to be such a healthy church. They'll say, I, I, I left a church that fought and argued about everything. People were childish. They were demanding. They were negative. They were selfish. And they'll tell us, but I don't see that here. I don't see that here. I truly believe one of the reasons we don't see that here is because of the consistent leadership example of people like Kevin. Modeling what Paul is talking about here. I really do believe that. And I want to thank you as a church today for having a day like this in your personnel policy. I really do want to thank you for that. 1 Thessalonians 5 Paul says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. We ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And you do things like this for us. Thank you. Thank you for today for Kevin. This morning, I want to ask you in closing, are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you a servant or do you demand to be served? Are you selfish or do you demand your own way? If you're somebody here this morning, consumer mentality, who demands your own way, I can almost promise you you'll go through life destroying or at least damaging in some way most of your relationships. I hope if there's anybody here today like that, you would look at this text, and this text would become a new model for you. What could God do in your life? Living out Philippians 2. Looking after the interest of others. Putting others ahead of yourself. What could God do in your life? If you lived your life that way. What's the fruit that would come out of your life? This morning you've heard some of the testimonies. The fruit that's come out of Kevin and Sherry's ministry. Logan. Blake and Katie, you're going to hear of others today. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll add all these other things. Be a servant. Look after his kingdom. And God will produce the fruit. And that's what God's done. Amen.